So we are in a series called Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. And we've seen that despise, despite the highs and lows of Elijah's life, that God is still God in all situations. Uh, so what have we read so far? so far? Let's call this out. What are the stories we have read so far about Elijah's life? Okay, well, that's what we're doing today. What have we read up until this point? There was a drought. What else? You're going to have to talk louder because I can't, I can't hear you. Has he taken his nap yet? What? Did he take his nap yet? He has not, we have not gotten to that one yet. Yes, Christian. The widow. The widow. The widow. What about the widow? Um, she was very poor and about to die. Okay. But then her son dies. Okay, so what happens? Okay, so Samir, what were you going to say? Okay, he raises the widow's son back to life. There's something that happens before that. She blames Elijah. Okay, right. What does he do? So he does something good for her first before the son dies. What happened in that story? Flour and the oil, right? He makes that not run out. Okay. So we talked about that. So we've got the widow and her son. We have the famine. We got that from Andrew, right? We got the famine. How does God provide in the famine for Elijah? The ravens. The ravens, right? Bring food. Okay. And then we talked about the widow and her son. We said the oil and the flour don't run out. And then her son dies. Elijah raised him to life. What did we talk about last week? Obadiah. Obadiah. What about Obadiah? He's uh, hiding the prophets in the cave. Okay. Right? He's hiding the prophets. And so we talked about how Elijah encourages him in his faith as well. Uh, we see this, show, this beginning of the showdown between Ahab, Obadiah, and Elijah, and their different places of faith that they're in, right? Okay, good. At least we're remembering something from this year. That's great. Great. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the literal mountaintop moment with Elijah, and we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 40. So if you want to be flipping there, that's where we're going to be. We'll also have the verses up on the screen, too. Okay? All right, here we go. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So, starting off, one thing that's important to notice, uh, because it's stated throughout the story, and they keep mentioning it, and so it's important when they repeat things, is that all the people of Israel are here. Right? All the people of Israel. Um, and they say that multiple times. So that's an important point. And so it helps for me to understand how can all the people fit on a tiny mountaintop. Right? We're talking about, like, thousands of people, uh, the entire country of Israel is here. So it helps to actually see it, to look at the geography of this place. So we'll look at that in just a second. Um, so it's not just Elijah and Ahab and the prophets of Baal, which is often how we talk about this story, but it is everybody. Like the entire country is here to see what's going to happen at this point, right? Um, so Elijah picks this spot for several reasons. So you can go ahead and go to the, the first picture here. So when we're thinking about where Mount Carmel is, all right, it is 1,800 feet tall. It's actually part of a larger mountain range called the Carmel Mountain Range. Um, and it's kind of out of the way from the rest of Israel. Um, so it's close to the sea. So there's a reason for that as well, uh, is that the, uh, the Phoenicians, the people that are of Je where Jezebel's from, are known for their trading along the Mediterranean Sea. And so this would be a big uh, spot where they could oversee everything, their wealth of their empire, from the top of this point looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. This area is also known for getting a lot of rain, right? There are 30 inches of rain a year at this spot, 
And so it was incredibly fertile and had lots of growth um, in a very lush area. In fact, the word Carmel means God's vineyard because it was covered by uh, grape vineyards and olive groves. Uh, and it still is today. You can go ahead and go to the next one. So this is what it looks like today. That's Mount Carmel, right? It's a beautifully lush spot. But also, more importantly, it's pretty flat on the top, right? A lot of people can fit up there for this uh, big showdown that's about to happen. So imagine, right? This place normally looks like this. But what has been happening these past three years? No rain, no rain right? And so it must have been a, a kind of a cycle, a psych out for the... Uh, prophets of Baal, Elijah says, let's go to the spot that used to be super fertile, and we're going to have a showdown to uh, see whose God is real. And remember, your God is the God of fertility, right? And so they're going to the spot that used to be the super fertile place for this showdown, and it must have been a pretty big reminder that Baal had also not intervened and sent any rain up until this point, right? The second reason we think he probably picked this spot, later in verse 30, he mentions that there used to be an altar to Yahweh at Mount Carmel, that had been abandoned. Um, and Israel was familiar with the concept of altar sacrifices and worship at these high places on mountaintops. We see that Joshua was commanded to destroy the high places of the Canaanites at Megiddo, which was actually in this mountain range, and I'll show you in a picture in a second, uh, when Israel first conquered this area. So, yeah, so this is Mount Megiddo. It's in the Carmel mountain range, and it overlooks the Valley of Jezreel, which we'll talk about next week, where... Uh, Elijah outruns a chariot. Uh, but Mount Megiddo itself, as a side point, is interesting from a historical perspective. Uh, Mount Megiddo is the place where the first recorded battle in human history took place involving the Egyptians. Um, and so this idea comes about that because the first battle happened at Mount Megiddo, that the last battle of all time will happen at Mount Megiddo as well. And the uh, Hebrew word for mountain is har, and so you get the phrase Armageddon, or Armageddon, and where we get Armageddon from. Um, and so it's Armageddon's not a time, it's a location where they think the last battle of human history will take place. So that's just, that's for free, that, that's not part of this, but uh, it's just interesting. <laughs> there you go. All right, so let's get to the story then. So we see he's picking this spot for a clear reason to set up in the mind of people to doubt that Baal's going to come through. So we get to the big question that's setting this all up in verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. I mean, what a convicting question. Well, you go limping between two different opinions. Do you belong to God or to what everyone else says will bring life? What? claim is your identity in and jesus says something similar in matthew 6 24 when referring to another false god the idea of money he says no one can serve two masters either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money right you can't serve two masters this idea of limping between two things you gotta make a choice you have to pick one and Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? There is a clear choice that has to be made. Elijah describes it as limping between two things. John in Revelation will describe it as being lukewarm. You, you know, you're not hot or cold between these two things. Um, you're not really doing either thing very well. Uh, 
And I don't know about you, but recently it seems like I've talked to more and more people who experience this in their spiritual life. Um, it's sometimes it's so much easier to have spiritual conversations with people who know nothing about God and are on that far side than people who are sort of going to church but don't really want to follow Jesus. Right? I know our, a lot of people in our church are experiencing this right now. Um, and the interesting thing is when we, we think about this too is that our culture sees this limping as being well-rounded. Like if you are someone who is accepting of all ideas and uh, you know, has a little bit of everything, that this is the way the world should be, that the, the limpers have been elevated to people that are whole. Um, and so what is the response of the people to this mindset, right? That when Elijah points it out, you guys are limping between two things. What is their reaction? It says they didn't say a word, right? They, they didn't answer him a word, right? When something, someone knows they've done something wrong, that's usually the response, right? Uh, is that they're going to stay silent. Israel knew what they were doing, were paralyzed by the pressure to be like the world, to be like what everyone else enjoys, not unlike people who enjoy pumpkin spice. Right? Wow. Uh, so, that's, all, that's what this is all about. It's all coming back, though. Uh, so let's take a moment and talk about some of this for a little bit. How do you respond to someone when they say that they're a Christ follower but look like they're following the ways of the world? All right, so we're going to, just for like five minutes, you can turn your chairs. I know we're not going to be able to get too deep, uh, but I feel like this is one we need to talk about. So Elijah calls them out. He says, you have to make a choice, right? Which one are you going to be? Are you going to serve God? Are you going to serve Baal? You can't keep limping between these two things. So then we get to the setup, right? He's going to set up this showdown. In verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, this is not technically true, right? We talked about last week that there are 100 prophets that Obadiah has hidden away somewhere. Um, there's two ideas about why Elijah thinks he's the only one. Uh, one is because, remember, all the people of Israel are on the top of the mountain, and these guys aren't showing up. And so uh, either they're still in hiding, uh, or, and they're too scared to come out and face what's happening, or Elijah is purposefully saying he's the only one left, so Ahab won't go looking for these hundred other guys. So there, either way, uh, it's not technically true, but there is some reason why he might say that. Verse 23, let two bowls be given to us. Let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So this seems like fair terms, right? They get to choose first, home field advantage. Uh, they can pick the bowl. They will set all the full thing. And whichever God sends down fire, That'll be the real God. So, prophets of Baal, they go first. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are so many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared for it, and called upon the name of Baal and from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar, and they had made. Did you catch the word that Jeremiah uses to describe them? Like, they're in the sacrifice. They limped around the altar that Elijah, you know, had just accused them of. You guys are limping between things, and they stay silent. And then they set up this altar, and then they're limping around the altar. Uh, I mean, what a picture of following after something false, right? They don't even realize their own brokenness. 
And what a truth of our own brokenness as well. Do we even realize the things that will bring us life are causing us to limp instead of walking in the fullness as we are intended to? Are we Elijah or are we the prophets of Baal here? Are we so unaware of our own brokenness? Verse 27, And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I mean, just the brazenness of his trash talk here uh, <laughs> to the, the prophets of Baal. Um, and you also see in this picture, too, the indifference of their god as well. Right? He's too busy for you. He's far away. He doesn't care. And Elijah will address all of those things and how he shows God's power. Right? God's not too busy. God's not too far away. And he cares. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves, as were their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Notice the three times of Baal's silence here. No voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Right? They are desperate for Baal to answer. They're cutting themselves, limping around, screaming all day, and nothing's happening. And I think that's a good point as well, that activity and enthusiasm are not signs of spiritual growth. Right? Just because we're really excited and making a big show of things doesn't mean that our faith is being placed in the right things. So, let's talk about that for a bit. What are the things that you place your faith in besides God, and how have you seen that fall short despite your enthusiasm? Okay, so let's get deep with this. Take a minute, or take a couple of minutes, you can turn your chairs and talk to the group about this. So now, it's Elijah's turn. Verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Man, I love the picture here. Remember, all the people, right? And he says, just, just come here. Come here, guys. Uh, and invites them all in to show what the altar of God should look like, right? They're, they've torn it down. They've been doing the stuff to Baal. And so he rebuilds it. He shows them. He's teaching them by service. Let, let me show you exactly what this should look like to understand who God is, that God is still God, even if you forget about him, right? He's still there. He's not too busy for you. We see this common picture of God as a servant inviting people to come closer all the time in order to learn about who he is, right? Rabbis would sit and invite their followers to come close and sit at their feet. Right, we saw earlier in the year when we studied the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus sits on the mountain and invites the disciples to come to him. Right, God desires intimacy from his people before he reveals who he is. Right, he wants you to come close. He's not far away. He is intimate. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, right? It's almost like he's saying, remember who you are. I feel like every time I teach, I use that quote from the Lion King. Remember <laughs> who you are. You are a chosen people to stand out to the rest of the world to show them who God is. You don't belong to the possessor called Baal, right? What is your name? Your name was given to you by God, Israel. Who is your God? I care about you. I know who you are. Who is your true identity? 
And so then he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed, which is about four gallons of water. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. For the three silent responses of Baal, he adds three more obstacles to overcome by adding water to make it more difficult for God to bring fire. And so the wood is drenched and there can be no accusation that a a spare spark from flint or rock or something from the wood lighting it. God would get all the glory here. And Elijah is risking it all at this moment. Right? He's doubling down that God is going to act and show up in a big way. If he's wrong, it means death for him probably, uh, and that the Hebrews will fully embrace this culture of Baal worship, which is everything he's fought against. He's putting it all on the line. So let's take a minute and talk about that. Have you ever taken a risk where you were all in? How did you feel, and did you succeed? Let's take a couple minutes to talk about that. So, prophets of Baal had a turn. Elijah sets up his turn, and really what comes next is God's turn to show who he is. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, and I'm just going to pause right there for a second, that is going to be real important in just a little bit, but just as a note, that that refers to the sacrificial system in Exodus, uh, where it's around 3 p.m. that they would offer a sacrifice to God, Um, and so it's appropriate that this sacrifice, this bull and the fire coming down is going to happen at the time at 3 p.m. Jeremiah notes when the Israelites should have been offering sacrifices to God anyway. But we'll get to why that's more meaningful in a little bit. Uh, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. All of these things Elijah bases on God's what? His word, right? This is one of the unique things about Yahweh from all of these other uh, pagan gods that Israel encounters. It's that everything is based on the word of God. Not on the fist, not on the punishment, not on action, but on word. God promises Abraham that his, his descendants would be a nation. Moses led through the wilderness based on God's words. Jesus' words healed people and angered his enemies. Right? Most of God's actions are based on his words, on his promises, that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. God, God doesn't want his prophets to negotiate for his power. He doesn't want them to have these great shows and to cut themselves and to do all these actions. Right? He wants them to trust that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. That trust means more than a transaction. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Why did God or why did Elijah want God to answer so that the people would know the Lord and that they would come back to him? And I think we have to ask ourselves often, is that why we want God to answer us when we pray to him? Is it because we want God to get the glory for people to see who he is or is it for other reasons? What we see here is that God always longs for redemption, right? He wants to act big so that his people will come back to him, right? He wants them back no matter what, no matter how far they stray from him. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
So imagine this moment, right? Uh, that they've all waited for all day for fire to come down to see something happen with no response from Baal. And then Elijah says, everyone come in real close, right? And then, whew, fire comes down as they've all gathered as close as possible to this altar, right? God loves a dramatic entrance. Um, it's almost as if God is saying, do you remember me now? Right? Remember the flaming torch that walked through the covenant with Abraham? Do you remember the pillar of fire that led you and Moses out of Egypt? Do you remember how fire appeared over the tabernacle when I met with Moses in the desert? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I am. We see not that just fire appeared, but all of the altar was consumed. Right, The wood and the sticks and the stone, everything is consumed by fire. Why should that matter? Why would Jeremiah reference that point? Because the sacrifice itself is also significant to Israel's history. Why did they even offer these sacrifices? Why this kind of a trial to show who God is? Right? Only, it's specific that they offer a bull as well, because only a sin offering or guilt offering required the sacrifice of the whole animal, specifically a bull. So it's almost as if God is saying, I didn't just answer to show you my power. I'm demonstrating that I forgive you for all the things you guys have done. Right? He's taking away their sin and guilt from this offering, right? that they violated this divine covenant, and God is saying, I'll take it all anyway. This whole moment is foreshadowing for God's great picture of redemption through Jesus. If we look forward in Mark chapter 15, verse 34 to 35, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lame sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. So why would they say he's calling Elijah at this moment? Right? It says the ninth hour, which is the hour of the oblation, which is 3 p.m. Right? It's the same time that this thing happened with Elijah on the mountaintop. And on a different mountain in Mount Calvary, right? they're wondering, is he calling out for Elijah? Is he calling for this power of God to come down? Right? He's calling out a specific time for this thing to happen. And the story continues in Mark 15, 36 to 38. And someone ran and filled a sponge with some sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This time, God doesn't send fire, but he does accept the sacrifice. And the curtain of the temple, which was on a high place, is torn. The people have been redeemed because God wants his people back, no matter how far they stray from him. Let's take a moment and uh, just for a couple minutes, just silently to yourself, let's journal a bit about how we would feel in this situation. I think scripture becomes more real when we place ourselves there. So take just a couple minutes just to yourself, and if you, you know, feel like you've thought of things and you want to share with someone, you can, but for the most part, just silently. How would you react if you were the one of the people here and saw God's response? What would you be feeling? Okay, so just for a couple minutes, we'll play some music. Just journal your thoughts about your reactions to this story. All right, as you've had your turn to think about how you react, let's look at how the people react in our story. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They finally have stopped limping between the two things, and they have seen who God is. 
with singed eyebrows, they are chanting, The Lord, He is God. Which in Hebrew, you're going to love this, is Elijah. Elijah, 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 Elijah. They're ch- like, what a personal boost for Elijah. Like, that, that not only are they getting that He is God, but He's also being recognized a little bit. Um, that God has given him a little personal recognition shout out uh, in the mean of in the midst of that as, as well. Um, verse 40, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and sla- slaughtered them there. The people are listening to Elijah, right? The troubler of Israel has more power than the king at this point, right? They're not listening to Ahab, they are listening to Elijah. What Jezebel had done to the prophets of God was returned on the prophets of Baal by his people and not by the king. They're the ones that rise up and say, we are done with this. The people are obeying someone speaking with God's authority. They're being led by his word again. They're not limping between identities. They belong to God, and so they take action. And this is a powerful mountaintop moment, but Elijah is only here because of the faithfulness of God in all the moments leading up to this point. When we chart Elijah's story leading up to this point, we see how God prepared him. And I wanted to do a fancy graph, but then I couldn't figure it out. So let's imagine it in your brain here. So he reminded of Obadiah to act boldly in faith. And then Elijah reminds Israel who they are. He gave God's word that the oil would not run out. And then he tells people that God will bring fire by his word. He puts his body on the widow's son three times and praying for God's power. And then he pours water three times over the altar. Nobody starts at the mountaintop. Right? It's a journey to get there. There are steps along the way where we learn who God is and how to speak using his word. And so to wrap up today, I just want to spend the last bit of our time thinking about what are some of these mountaintop moments. We need that encouragement that we are going to get there, that there are those moments that God shows himself in a big way. So I just want to spend some time, and we don't have to stay in the same groups. You guys are welcome to move around. I feel like that's something we can, you know, uh, try and implement a little more. You're welcome to move around, talk with different people. What are some of those mountaintop moments? And encourage each other with those stories. Okay? All right, let's go.